On today's podcast, we'll be joined by environmental scientist and lead ocean researcher from the Ocean Cleanup, Dr. Matthias Egger. He's going to tell us all about the amazing work the Ocean Cleanup is doing all around the world to rid our oceans of plastic. You know, they recently removed 25,000 kilos. That's 28 US tons or 55,000 pounds of plastic out of the Pacific Ocean. We'll discuss the effects of ocean pollution on sharks and other ocean wildlife habitats. Plus, Dr. Matthias will be discussing ways that we can all do our part to keep our oceans clean. All that and more is coming up on this episode of Shark Week, the podcast. I'm Luke Tipple, marine biologist and a frequent voice on my favourite things, oceans and sharks. And I'm stoked to bring the magic of Shark Week right to your ears. You know, sharks have been a big part of my life for over 20 years. They're a critical part of the ocean and a conduit to a better understanding life on our planet. So whether you've never seen Shark Week before, or you've been a diehard fan over the 30 plus years it's been around, this podcast is for you. On today's episode, I have a very special guest and I got to tell you, I've been very excited about this episode for quite some time because we're talking about a topic that is extremely important and while it's not directly about sharks, it directly affects sharks. So it's something we should all pay a lot of attention to. We have lead ocean researcher from the Ocean Cleanup, Dr. Matthias Egger. Mate, welcome to the Shark Week, the podcast. Thank you, Luke. And thanks for having me. So... Let's uh, let's set the you know the stage here. Tell everyone what it is you're doing. Yeah, so I'm like you said, I'm part of the research team here at the Ocean Cleanup. The Ocean Cleanup is a nonprofit. We are based in the Netherlands, and our our bold aim is to essentially rid the world's oceans of plastic. So try to make sure that there's no more plastic waste in the ocean. And and my role within the organization is to figure out the problem. So what is the problem that we're dealing with? Where's the plastic coming from that ends up in the ocean? You know, how is it getting there? What happens to it once it is in the ocean? And what kind of harm is it doing, you know, while just accumulating in the ocean and fragmenting into small bits of plastic and, and all the stuff that's happening to it? Now, how big a problem is plastic in the ocean? And you must get this question just constantly, but we hear it in the news all the time that, you know, our oceans are basically turning into plastics, that it's in everything, it's in our, it's it's turning up in our blood, it's 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 in our guts, it's it's in our seafood, it's in everything. So is this really the catastrophic problem that it's made out to be? It is a significant challenge to marine life, yes. Uh, it adds up to other stressors like climate change, ocean acidification, you have deoxygenation because of you know fertilizer going into the ocean, you have overfishing, there's a whole bunch of issues that marine life has to deal with. And on top of that, you add uh, lots of plastic to it, uh, with it lots of pollution, chemicals, nasty stuff that's associated with the plastic. So it's certainly not helpful for marine life. It is a big problem, but it's also a problem that, you know, I think we can still manage, we can still solve. So it's not too late, but uh, the time is running. Now, when you say it's a problem for marine life, I mean, there's studies coming out, you know, fairly regularly now, identifying microplastics and chunks of plastics and even very large pieces of plastics in marine life. You know, uh, in our favorite animals, in sharks, it's being found in their gut tracts, in their their tissue. Uh, there's a, a new paper that just came out saying that they're finding it in deep water sharks now. Uh, in 67% of deep water sharks that are being caught and sampled, they're finding microplastics in their gut. And, you know, this is clearly a problem that's affecting 
all the, the trophic levels of our marine life. Um, how do you explain to somebody how this actually affects us when it's affecting marine life? Well, us humans, it can affect it like twofold. First of all, through consumption of seafood, right? If, if there's plastic and chemicals in the fish we eat, we eat that stuff. So it ends up on our plate. That's one way plastic pollution in the ocean can affect us as consumers. But as I think maybe even more importantly, you know, it can impact uh, how marine ecosystem work. Marine ecosystem, they play a really essential role in providing oxygen for us, you know, in taking up CO2 from the atmosphere. So they have a key role to play in, in regulating climate and oxygen levels. And we stop messing around with that. And we just don't know what the impact of that is uh, for, for humans on Earth. Now, it's probably... Now, correct me if my timeline is wrong here, but I remember probably about a decade ago, uh, we started hearing about this place called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Um, you know, it was this big revelation that we had this large gyre in the Pacific Ocean that was pretty much on a straight line between Hawaii and California. And it was just this gigantic Texas-sized patch of plastic that we were hearing different reports of, you know, almost being able to walk on solid plastic across there. You know, it was, can you explain to people the, the problem, what you've put into place to solve it and the actual scale of your global operations? Yes, um, it will be my pleasure. And there's also a lot of misconception about what the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is and what it is not. So first of all, I think it just shows, you know, it's, it's very remote. Just think of you, you're entering a boat or a vessel in California, Hawaii. It takes about five days to get out there. So it's really, really far away from any land, right? Uh, so we're usually out there for a month or two uh, and there's no land anywhere close. And all of a sudden you see like all this plastic accumulating around you. So it just really visualizes quite well the, the scale of the problem, right? It's, it's there out in the middle of the ocean floating around. You see a toothbrush, for example. Uh, but that's just the, the visible part of the, of, the, of the iceberg, right? There's lots of plastic also in the, in the water, on the seabed. But it's a very nice visualization of the extent that we are polluting our oceans. And then it is certainly not an island of trash. You cannot walk on it. So if, if I'm out there and I would send you a photo of, of the ocean surface there, the only thing you would see is blue. Very pristine, beautiful ocean landscape. Uh, but if you then zoom in, you'll start realizing, oh, there's lots of little bits and pieces there, like lots of microplastics, especially if the sea is calm and you're out there on a, on a small dinghy or a small sailing vessel. I, I usually compare it to the night sky. You know, you see stars and the longer you look, the more you see. And that's essentially what you see out there of the microplastics. But if you take a step, step back and zoom out a little bit, you start realizing that, say, if you fly over with an airplane or a drone, you don't see the microplastics, but you start seeing big stuff. You start seeing big nets. You know, you see buoys, crates, baskets, all the kind of big items. If you count the pieces of plastic floating out there, it's mostly microplastics because they're very abundant. If you talk about the plastic mass, so the weight of plastic accumulating there, it's mostly big items like nets and, and crates and buoys. Um, but the point is, it's it's quite dispersed. So we, we talk about maybe one piece of plastic per square meter. So it is a lot if you look at the, at the area. So that the garbage patch, it, it's quite dynamic. You know, it moves north and south, and it's it's just it moves around a lot with the ocean currents and weather conditions. But it's about three times the size of France, or for the American friends, about two times the size of Texas. It's a huge area. And if you have one piece of plastic per square meter, that, that adds up to a lot of plastic, right? Uh, but you cannot just go there, walk on it, or even like just scoop it up because, you know, you first have to concentrate it somehow. And that is exactly what we do. So essentially what, what we do is like the Hawaiian 
islands. They're out there in, in close to the patch and they, they have lots of plastic on their beaches because the, the stuff that's in the garbage, garbage patch ends up on those coastlines. So what we do is we develop the cleanup system that goes into the garbage patch and creates an artificial coastline. So that then accumulates the plastic in this cleanup system which allows us essentially to then extract it. So we first have to concentrate it up to make it feasible to extract. And that is what we do at the Ocean Cleanup. And uh, it is quite, you know, an ambitious uh, project. Um, but I think it gives me a lot of hope also because you're out there. We're not only cleaning, we're learning so much about the problem. And so what we now can do is, so if you're a scientist, if you're lucky, you maybe can go out there once a year. Uh, if you have good funding for that or a research vessel associated with your institute. What we have is we have vessels going back and forth all the time over, you know, the entire year. So we're now starting collecting data from all different seasons between different years. And that is really like increasing our understanding of the ecosystem also out there, not only the plastic and how we can clean it, but also what kind of animals do actually live out there at the top of the ocean surface. Mm. So let's uh, kind of tackle the problem and, and, and lay out you know, the solution for people. And we'll get into where the plastic is coming from later. Um, what is actually causing this garbage patch, uh, you know, the gyre? What what kind of ocean movements are involved? Yeah, it's large-scale ocean dynamics. So you have like the, the big general circulation patterns in the ocean and it creates this kind of vortices, like eddies in, in the subtropical gyres. So that's usually around 30 degrees north and south in latitudes. And so you see those eddies forming because of how the water moves through the ocean at the ocean surface. Uh, so you have one in the North Pacific, then you also have such an eddy in the South Pacific, North and South Atlantic, and in the mm. Southern Indian Ocean. So to kind of put it in, in you know, visual terms to somebody, uh, would it be fair to say that you know, the ocean currents are basically banging into each other from different ocean movements and in the middle of those, it's creating kind of like this, you know, accumulation area. Maybe think of it like a like a drain plug where, you know, not so dramatic is creating this great big whirlpool, but it's creating an area that's bringing everything into it like you might see in a sink full of food scraps or something. It all concentrates on the center. Yeah. Is it something like that? Yeah, you, you, yes. But I think more visually, um, just look at the toilet you flush it, you see a world forming and stuff tends to sink in the middle of it. Um, that's actually what's happening. You know, we have this this, this, this big world and this big vortex. Uh, and, you know, in the middle of it, stuff tends to sink. Uh, so the water goes down in the middle. But plastic, for example, it doesn't go down because it's floating. So while the water goes mm. down, plastic stays at top. So essentially, if you would flush your toilet with just stuff that only floats and doesn't sink, you'll see that over time it accumulates a lot of it in, in the middle of, of, you know, of your water pond in there. And there's, you said there's five areas of focus of these you know, eddies around the planet. Are they all of the scale of the, the, the Pacific garbage patch or are they all accumulating plastic? That's one thing we do here at the Ocean Cleanup is try to map those garbage patches. We've done it for the North Pacific, uh, and we published that a few years ago. And now we are working on mapping the other garbage patches because, for example, especially in the Indian Ocean, for example, it could be there's a huge one there, but it could also be that there's not a garbage patch forming because of you know, how water moves, moves through the ocean. So, so we don't know whether there's a big one there or not even one at all. Um, and that shows that you know, we have a general idea of where things are accumulating and some educated guesses, but we just lack you know, more data to confirm our model estimates. 
so how do you actually establish that there is one of those accumulation sites? Do you, I mean, I imagine you actually have to go out there and sample it, right? Yeah, you go out there and have a look. <laughs> it's as simple okay. as that. I mean, with fancy tools, but that's what it comes down to. You sail across sure, and, and you collect data, visual observations. We fly drones. Uh, we have some small nets we drag for microplastics, bigger nets for, for bigger stuff. Uh, we're also developing a camera system we can attach to a vessel, to a boat. And it takes a photo of the sea surface every few seconds. And then we have an AI going through all that, uh, millions of photos, and it detects whether there's a plastic object actually there or not. So it tells us how much plastic is floating while, you know, transiting with a vessel. So, yeah, but we have to go out there. And what we do is we combine then what we observe with what our model predicts. And if we see that those two match, we are confident about the model. If they do not match, then we can use the data that we collect to fine tune the model to make it work. So you've established that obviously there is this garbage patch in Pacific and you're actually out there engaged in a cleanup now. And to me, when I look at this, uh, the scale is staggering because I hear reports of you bringing out, I think just recently you brought out 25,000 kilos of plastic from that area. And, you know, there's other reports saying that there's, you know, five trillion pieces of plastic in our oceans. Like these are gigantic, almost incomprehensible numbers. What does it actually take to pull 25,000 kilos of plastic out of the ocean? Well, for us, it takes a, a crane and a big boat. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, <laughs> it's a bit more complicated than that, but it's, it's a lot of weight. It sounds like a pretty big boat. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I mean, if you look at what fisher, fisheries are doing, you know, they're, they're dealing with much more mass. Also, if, if you go and look at the offshore oil and gas, you know, that, that's, that's different loads that they are towing and, and lifting. So 25 tons or 25,000 kilograms, that's... It's a lot, but it's also not very uncommon for these kind of vessels to have cranes that can actually lift that. Uh, but it's substantial, and we, we are now over 100 tons or 100,000 kilograms that we removed from the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Um, but the thing is, we were still testing, are still testing our cleanup system. So we aim to make it larger, you know, to actually increase that substantially to, to even collect even more plastic with one cleanup system. And for those of you who are questioning kind of how it works, imagine that you're trying to clean up a pond at home. Imagine you've got this great big pond in your backyard and you've got stuff floating all around it. Now, you could go out there with a, a pool net and try to scoop trash out like little bit by bit. Or you could get a great big net that goes all around the very edge of the pond and then you slowly, slowly drag it in and drag it towards you, capturing everything that's in the pond except the water. Now, this is basically what they're doing out on the ocean. They've got a great big barge that puts out a huge net. It's a very shallow net, so the, the fish and everything can get out, but the floating plastic can't. So they drag it into the boat slowly, 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 so the plastic doesn't spill over. And then as it gets closer to the boat, they wrap it in this great big kind of like net sock stocking thing and drag it on board. And it's now this huge, big package of discarded plastic in various states of disrepair and, and degradation and that gets hauled away for recycling. So and I think that the key thing here is that the net is open at the bottom right our cleanup system is about three meter deep the new one will go to four meter but it's very shallow um, because most plastic is just floating at the top right at least the floating fraction and then so it's open at the bottom, fish can just swim in and out, you know, it, and it, the, the speed is crucial. So the towing speed is less the speed you would just walk when you walk on a street. So it's really slow. So what we see is just fish swimming into the system, checking it out, swim out again. Uh, and so they can just 
swim in and out. There are escape routes for, you know, uh, fish once there. So we have the, those two arms that are collecting the debris. And at the end of it, we have a retention zone. That's where all the stuff, all the debris accumulates. That's also, we you know, where we don't have, do not want to have any marine life in there. So there are escape routes from out that zone. There are also breathing uh, possibilities. So if you, if you know a turtle needs to surface for air, you can do that. Uh, and there are like the lights scaring them off. You know, I think there's even like a fake shark scaring off turtles. So we're trying Wait, to really mitigate fake... any marine life. You, you got to elaborate <laughs> on that. You got a fake shark that scares off turtles? Yeah, oh, I haven't seen myself, but colleagues told me that they are playing around with that to see if that has any effect in scaring off turtles. Um, so you, you have to take any measure possible because every turtle safe is, is a good turtle right so certainly we do not want to have anything ending up in the retention zone and if it's if a fake shark helps to scare them off then then why not try it yeah do you know what uh what they're actually using like is it a robotic (laughs) tiger shark or something or just like a a model of a shark you know any idea i do not know i will definitely ask my colleagues uh, (laughs) tonight yeah yeah we definitely want to talk to the head of your robotics team that's building you know robotic giant tiger sharks that swim around in nets because that sounds cool (laughs) it does yeah Um, but okay so with all this effort uh is there any bycatch in what you do there is bycatch uh it's not a lot but there is bycatch and so we actually look at the bycatch that we have in the system and we also do an autopsy on on those fish that we collect and on the the turtles for example that we collect uh, try to figure out what their health condition was and for the turtles we see that very often almost all cases that the turtles that we had in the cleanup system they had lots of plastic ingested sometimes they were even dead before they were collected in the cleanup system because they were quite decomposed already so we try to figure out you know how much is actually primary bycatch so you know things that we killed animals that you know were uh, extracted because of our operation and things that were just floating there dead already the secondary bycatch and we do those autopsy and we share that data with uh, other scientists you know to really investigate that further uh, also since this is a shark podcast we have pygmy sharks in there uh, but we also look into how much microplastics do we find in the guts of, of those pygmy sharks to also tell us something about you know what's the impact the plastic pollution is having on those remote ecosystems so you can do two things right you can look at the impact that you have while cleaning which is very crucial we need to very closely monitor and make sure that that's very low but it also because that's bycatch we can use that as you know a possibility to actually study the what is the impact of plastic pollution on those fish species or other species that we collected uh, what is the uh, determination when you do these autopsies and look at these animals is the general thought that they were very sick and that's why they were unable to escape the net system or already dead as you say it depends on the species you look at if, if you have a turtle you know and, and they have lots of plastic in the stomach we know that they have difficulties um, diving going into deeper waters so it could be that they don't cannot use our escape routes because they have difficulties actually diving down there, like the three, four meters depth. Um, but so we, we don't know yet. So that data is being collected and it's being shared with experts because I myself, I'm not an expert in all the species. Um, and so we, we need to partner up with the scientists that actually know whether, you know, why we think those species ended up in our retention system. And um, what is the, uh, the ultimate goal and time frame for what you're doing in the Pacific? Yeah, we want to have 90% of the Great Pacific, Gar- Great Pacific Garbage Patch cleaned by 2040. So within the next 20 years or so. So that's 20. Uh, how long have you been out there total so far? We have been now uh, with the current cleanup system a bit over one year. 
but we started trialing the first prototypes 2018. So this is in one year you're you know experimenting getting the methods right i what does the development timeline for you guys look like is it just more vessels is it advanced cleaning techniques you know i imagine in 20 years from now the the methodology may change or is it just more stuff out there yeah so i mean i have to maybe clarify it a little bit i mean since last year we have a cleanup system out there that works uh but of the trials started way earlier than that. So we start with like pool tests and the model simulations here in the Netherlands, went into the North Sea to test different barrier configurations. And in 2018, we had Wilson, our first cleanup system that we launched from uh, San Francisco. Maybe you've seen it, you know, we towed it under the Golden Gate Bridge, went out, did lots of testing. It worked, but it did not. It also failed and broke into two pieces. But we had a lot of lessons learned. And we had another prototype, System 1B out there the year later. And now we have System 2 that actually works you now that's a proof of concept and so what we do now we just started the transition to system three so that's the next cleanup system iteration and that's essentially making system two bigger so we're adding components to it slowly uh, to make it bigger and monitor you know the efficiency but also is there any change in environmental impact because that's the key thing right the reason why we do not have 10 systems out there now is because we want to make sure that we know that we don't do any harm to the ecosystem out there. So we have one system, we make it bigger, we monitor, we observe, and if it's safe, then we want to use system three as a blueprint for a larger fleet. So there, increase it to two systems, three systems, up to 10, uh, to then really start the full cleanup of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And what type of finances are involved in putting this together? Like, what does a year of operations look like for the ocean cleanup? Well, that pretty much depends uh, on your R&D costs. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to just use the spendings from last year and, you know, make predictions to, to the future uh, because costs will come down. Um, also, once you have a bigger system, you extract more per unit of effort. Uh, our aim is to have 10 euros per kilogram of plastic removed. I think that's equal roughly one 10 USD per kilogram of plastic that we remove eventually from the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And that's all funded by, uh, you're a non-profit, obviously. So is it private donations? Is it government donations? I mean, $10, $10 a kilo and you're aiming to remove, you know, tens of thousands of tons. You know, that's an extremely expensive operation. It is very expensive. Yes, uh, we are the money. The money we get is donations. It's we are non-profit, uh, so we are funded by donations purely. Uh, a lot of it is, you know, fundraising like Facebook, for example, and our, you know, me, other people like you and me giving small amounts, but it adds up to actually a substantial amount of money. But also philanthropists, you know, uh, rich people trying to you know help the, solving this issue uh, and giving us money. Therefore, we have some partnerships. That also gives us some in-kind contributions, you know, access to infrastructure, logistics. So it, it really is a team effort. And it's really motivating to, to see, you know, that people are so willing to help. And it goes beyond giving money. It really sharing expertise and giving access to, to their equipment. That's really, um, you know, um, good to see. And it, it fills me with a lot of hope that we can actually tackle that problem and solve it. Let me move on to where this plastic is coming from because I, I just watched uh, one of the videos that you guys put out and I found it absolutely fascinating actually because in my mind, the the garbage patch was full of Coke bottles and you know land waste and, and stuff like that. But as it turns out, that's not at all what's out there. It is not, no. <laughs> so 
uh, we already knew from past research that about half of the plastic mass is fishing nets out there. So th that we knew. So we knew the fishing industry had uh, now a significant role to play there. Uh, but somehow we assumed the other 50%, which is rachets, so hard plastic objects, we, we assumed them to mostly come from land, right, from these polluting rivers. Um, but what we now learn is, you know, if you go out there and you look, okay, what are the sources of those rachets, of the hard plastic items that we see? Uh, and, you know, sometimes there are clues of origin or uh, on there, like there can be a text in a specific language, there can be an address, there can be a logo of a company, uh, all the kind of, you know, information that we then puzzle together. And so if you look at the the rivers contributing plastic to, to the ocean, you know, the, the most polluting rivers there, like somewhere in the Philippines, for example, or India, or this kind of country. So we have a good understanding there. Then you go out in the garbage patch, and what we see is we have a lot of items from China, from, from Korea, from, from Japan, but also from the US. And, you know, so those countries, they are not the, the developing nations um, that, you know, usually the people point to with their fingers like, you are to blame, you are polluting the oceans. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things wrong with that, but I'm not getting there. My point is that those are big nations and they have big fishing fleets in, in these areas. And so that pointed us towards, okay, maybe that, you know, a lot of that is actually coming from fishing. And so we then looked into what kind of object is it, and we see it's it's mostly it's buoys, it's it's eel traps that we find, it, it's baskets, it's buckets, things used by you know fishermen out there, uh, and we then combined that with some some additional modeling and some fancy stuff, and so really find out that hey, up to eighty percent of the stuff out there is actually coming from fishing uh, by mass again. So eighty percent of plastic mass in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch most likely comes from fishing activities. And the remaining 20% could also be from fishing. We don't know, but it could also be from land. Because sometimes it's just very difficult to say where a piece of plastic came from because it's just a small fragment. Um, and so it, we had a hard time. But it came as, as a big surprise, I have to be honest, because we, we knew it was important, but not that. If you look at the, what we think globally is happening, you very often hear about 80% of all the plastic that we find in the ocean comes from land, about 20% from fishing. Uh, if you're in the garbage patch, it's still around 80% fishing, 20% from land. And you know, and the reason for that is if, if you're a plastic, a, a Coke bottle in a river, you float down the river, you enter the ocean, you have a very high chance of beaching back onto a nearby coastline. You know, with the tides and with the currents, you end up on the coastline. Uh, and only a small fraction makes it offshore. But if, if you're a fishing a buoy or even a Coke bottle, used by fishermen lost at sea, you're already away from any coastline. And there, you know, you have a low chance of beaching and a high chance of actually accumulating in this in these big garbage patches. And that is the reason why we see so much fishing out there, or fishing debris out there, and, and, and not so much from land-based sources. So you're saying that this great big two times Texas-sized area of plastic that's drifting around in the middle of the Pacific Ocean is vastly made up of discarded waste from fishing vessels or lost waste from fishing vessels. Yes, we estimate about 80% of it, yeah. To me, that sounds like, I mean, it's kind of hard to fathom how much material was carried out there by boats and how many boats are out there to be able to discard that much plastic. Yes, it is mind-blowing, yeah. Now, what do you guys do with all of the plastic that you collect? Yeah, that's another question that we get very often. It's a very obvious question and a good one. Uh, it's two different things. So we have 
the garbage patch, right? And we clean the garbage patch. And so you're out there in the international waters, uh, no man's land. So if you're a Dutch organization, you collect waste, it becomes Dutch waste. And we have to decompose, uh, um, get rid of it. So what we do is um, we recycle as much as possible. Um, and we're really good at that. So we made a case study um, two years ago where we took all the nets that we collected with System 1B, a previous prototype, and we turned them into sunglasses that we then sold. So maybe you've seen them, the, the blue fancy, the ocean of sunglasses. Uh, but that was a proof of concept. So we don't do not intend to make millions of sunglasses with the plastic we collect, but it was to show, hey, stuff out there has a value. It can be used to make new goods, you know. Um, so there we partner with other um, businesses to, you know, look into ways of recycling that into new products. Um, but when it comes to rivers, so we're also cleaning rivers, right? And intercepting plastic in rivers. That's a very different story uh, because there you're in a country, you collect the waste and, you know, you have to, you know, look into what is the best uh, available practices in, in these areas. And, and there it's a bit more complicated what you can recycle, what has to go to landfill. But obviously our aim is to, to recycle as much as possible. Is it also about the types of plastics we're making? Like we see all these, you know, different degrees of recyclability, of ability to break down. Um, could it be that we change the actual materials that we're producing to be, you know, perhaps less long-lived? Would that help? Yes, yes, it would help. Um, but a lot of the products made of plastic, they are made to last you know, for reasons. Uh, also, mm. for your food packaging, you don't want to have any leakage. Or if, if you have, you know, a Coke bottle again, you know, you, do, you want your Coke to be in that bottle for as long as, until you drink it. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult to create it such that, you know, it's perfectly fine. It doesn't degrade. It doesn't emit any kind of chemicals into your Coke. But as soon as it's empty, it's gone. So that's very challenging. But what really helps here is to make it more recyclable. Because, you know, if, if you go into, let's say, the shampoo bottles here in the supermarket, in, in your store, and they have different colors, different shapes, different additives, they have different softness, thickness, that makes it really almost impossible, you know, to recycle. Also, very often, we do not know what kind of additives, what kind of chemicals are added to the plastic. Uh, because you have the plastic polymers, but you also have chemicals added to the plastic to make it colorful, to make it different strength, to, you know, to make it last if it's exposed to sunlight, all these kind of things. And, you know, there's very little information out there from the industry telling us what is in the plastic and how, how can we even recycle that. Um, so a lot goes into uh, product design, you know, making sure that you have end of life in, in, in your product design as well, make it recyclable. Uh, certainly also biodegradability is, is very important. It's very challenging and there's a lot of misconception about what is biodegradable uh, because something that is biodegradable degradable on an industrial scale is not biodegradable in your garden. So, you know, you need high pressure, high temperature and different conditions. So there's lots of work to be done still. Uh, but I think as a first step, it would really help to just make sure that we, we, we stop producing so many different kinds of polymers and chemical additives and try to align there to make it more recyclable in the first place. Yeah. Now, the, uh, the World Economic Forum just put out an article I found was really interesting, and I'll, I'll quote it from their article here. They say, plastic consumption is projected to skyrocket in the coming decades from 460 million tons in 2019, so fairly recent data, to 1,231 million tons in 2060 based on projections. But we're talking about you know tripling the problem, assuming that our behaviors stay the same and don't get worse. Um, how can we possibly keep up with that? 
That is a great question. And again, you, you spotted the problem that we have. So, you know, if you have people arguing that we just have to recycle it all, uh, we'll have some issues. You no, know, you cannot triple production and also, you know, keep up with recycling. So there needs to be some kind of regulation in, you know, making sure that this is uh, done more sustainably. Um, and that is one of the, you know, the aim of the plastic treaty, for example, that I know that we might have heard of it, uh, to try to, you know, kind of make work and maybe also look into capping that production because we cannot endlessly exponentially increase production and, and just claim, okay, if we do, if we clean rivers and oceans and we look into better waste management and recycling, we can continuously exponentially increase production. At a certain point, you'll have issues. We, we've, we've seen it with so many environmental problems in the past and just think of CO2 as well. I mean, Exponential increase is, is really tricky. And, and, you know, the recent example of the COVID pandemic, I think now everybody knows what an exponential increase is. It happens slowly and all of a sudden it hits you. Uh, and this is what is going to happen with the plastic production if we, if we don't get a, a grasp on, you know, on, on, on reducing that exponential increase in yeah, this production. Yeah. What is your hope for the future? What would be your message to people um, in, you know, helping solve this problem in the future without needing someone like yourself and your team to to go in and, and clean up after us yeah i mean i could say my hope is to have a healthy ocean in the, in the future and being the, that my son can go diving like i did and see like all of the fish and marine creatures and sharks and turtles and corals and all those colors that would be my dream uh but and then you know i'm from switzerland i live in the mountains far away from the ocean right so i very often get the question like why do you even care about it it's so far away and you know we don't even have good fish here so okay if there's less fish in the ocean doesn't impact us um, i say we, we need to start really appreciating what the ocean is doing for us and my hope is that people start to appreciate and understand the key role the ocean is playing for all you know life on earth and and that includes everyone people like me living up in the mountains, people living in coastal areas and on remote islands. You know, the ocean produces the oxygen, you know, it regulates climate. It's so essential. It's feeding a significant part of the, of the world population. Maybe not the Swiss, but a lot of other people are being fed by fish from the ocean, right? So, yeah, so my hope yeah. is that we really start to appreciate and understand what the ocean is doing for us. Now, if if we were to give people just a you know a simple bullet point of here's what you can do to have zero impact on the plastic problem in the future, by the sounds of it, we need to essentially eat no seafood because that's contributing to the fishing fleets are you know a large problem for the Pacific garbage patch, and not use any plastics like that. That seems like a almost insurmountable uh, objective in today's you know consumptive environment. Um, what do you do personally um, and what do you advise people to practice? Like how can we just be better, more responsible citizens in our use of these you know, products and resources? Yeah, good question. I mean, I'm a vegetarian, so I could say stop eating meat and fish, but most people don't have the choice. So, um, and in terms of, you know, use less plastic, I mean, very often there's no alternative. If you go to the supermarket, yeah, I mean, you either buy the stuff wrapped in plastic or you, you walk out of the supermarket essentially with no products, <laughs> right? So there's there's not really a choice you can make there either. Uh, maybe if you're in a rich country and have enough money, yes. But again, if most people cannot choose. So I think there it really comes down to, you know, um, if you live in a, in a democratic system, you know, with your vote, I think it can influence it a lot uh, by educating people. Uh, I mean, no, it sounds so theoretical. So, I mean, if, if you would say that to someone listening to this podcast, they would just say, okay, that's just a standard thing to say. And, you know, okay, there's not much I can do about it. Um, there's, I think, 
yeah, it's, it's, I don't want to like sound pessimistic, but at the moment there's, there's a lot of stuff you can do on an individual basis. Like, you know, um, be aware of, of what cons- your consumption has on the environment that goes beyond plastic pollution, but more on the environment in general as well. Uh, be aware of how you vote, uh, you know, who you want to be representative uh, in, in, in your government and, and know how are there, what are their um, aims to protect the environment or the oceans. So, but for me, I mean, one thing is buy less stuff. I really think of, you know, do you really need that? Uh, and, and if so, you know, does it really add any value to you? Or could you maybe also buy it secondhand, look into that kind of options only because it's cheap doesn't mean you need it. I know even if the marketing is saying you need it really. Yeah, buy less stuff. I think it's as simple as that and be more aware of your consumption. Well, how much of the uh, the river problem? Because obviously that's something that is affecting, you know, each country individually. How much of that is the single-use plastics that people use so much? You know, the Coke bottles and things like that. A lot, almost all of it. In the rivers, it's mostly packaging, single-use plastic. It's 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 the bottles, it's the wrappers, it's you no know, the the food containers. Yes, that's what we see in, in those rivers and also in the coastal environments close to those river estuaries. So I think it'd be fair to say to people that hey, if there is something you want to do buy less or zero of that single-use plastic stuff, um, which may be an impossibility, but you might be able to make some, you know, let's say luxury choices of, yeah, sure, you need to buy the the food that comes in plastic because that's the thing that you need, but maybe you don't need to buy, you know, a single-use Coke bottle, you know, carry a, a water bottle, drink more water. might be a simple thing that people can do to reduce that type of waste, you know? Yeah, your coffee mug. I have my own coffee mug. Uh, mug I bring. Yep. I travel a lot, so, you know, um, I just have that ready with me and just ask them to fill that one up. I have my own bo- water bottle I, I, I refill. Uh, certainly don't use plastic cutlery and, and, and you no know, plates. That's just ridiculous. I mean, just do your dishes. <laughs> and, you know, um, so that does certainly, yeah, try to use less plastic uh, where it's avoidable uh, and, and reuse, you know, things that you can reuse. It can even be a plastic bottle that you reuse, but reuse it more than once. So there you already have an impact. So even if, if you're sometimes you forget your you use a bottle, reusable bottle and you end up buying a Coke bottle, you know, maybe fill that a few times with water before you throw it away. So at least it gives it uh, like a, a little bit of a, a life before thrown away. Yeah, I think there you can already on on a large scale make quite an impact on based on these individual choices. And where can people donate to you guys to to help in your ocean cleanup? Yes, uh, good question. Go check out our website. It's theoceancleanup.com. And in there, you, there's a just a button you can click and say donate and you can give your donation there. Awesome. Well, Matthias, I, I wish that this was a uh, an end of the podcast where we're like, here's the solution, here's how we solve it. <laughs> and, you know, we can all feel good that in the next, you know, 30, 40 years, everything's going to be fixed and corrected and so much better. But, you know, it sounds like we are just kind of scratching the tip of the iceberg of a problem that is bearing down on us and going to crush us unless we do something drastic about it. So, Without it sounding too pessimistic, I, I know that it's a massive problem, but I'm uh, extremely grateful that there's people like yourself and your organization out there actually doing something about it. And what sounded like a massive, massive problem is at least getting some attention now. And uh, I, I wish you all the best for helping mitigate that over the next decades of time. Um, and I'll be following it with interest. Thank you so much. Thank you, Luke. It was really nice talking to you and thanks for your kind words. And 
it is a pessimistic problem, but I'm also very optimistic because, you know, you just said we tripled the production. So we, we are not there yet. It could be even worse. So there's still time to act. And I think we can still solve it. And I'm optimistic that we can solve it eventually. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Matthias. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Luke. So this is Shark Week, the podcast, and this is kind of an unusual episode for us because we've spent the whole time talking about plastic and, you know, a few comments about sharks and their consumption of plastic as they're cruising through their lives. The reason that this is such an important episode for us all to focus on is that plastic is such a monumental problem that every citizen of this planet has, whether you're landlocked or ocean bound or whatever there's just so much of it in our system and the science is clear it's affecting us heavily it's very likely that you right now have microplastics in your system whether it's from the the plastics that's biodegrading and entering your water or from plastics that are actually leaching out of plastic products that you're having it's a growing problem that we're becoming more aware of that is actually affecting our health and definitely affecting our economies. And it's something we all need to focus on. Now, if we say, look, we really only care about sharks, well, it's absolutely affecting sharks. Almost every shark that gets caught out there and sampled now has plastic inside it. And that's coming from fish that they're eating, that are eating these small pieces of plastic that are in the ocean. Now, if you imagine where that's coming from, if you can think of a Coke bottle that gets discarded, goes through a river, enters the ocean, eventually breaks down to sort of soft, mushy stuff that is fairly small. And the little fish eat it. It gets stuck in their stomach, gets stuck in their tissues, then a shark eats it or the next fish up in the trophic food chain eats it. And this stuff bioaccumulates in their bodies. And we're finding sharks and turtles and all kinds of marine life with pounds and pounds and even kilos of plastic in their gut system and in their tissues. It's making them sick, it's killing them, and it's certainly affecting the quality of the meat of the fish that you're eating, if that's all you care about. So this is a problem for our marine life, for our ecosystem, and for us and our health which will eventually cost us money. So this is something that we really need to pay attention to. And like I said to Matthias, I really wish this was a podcast where we're like, hey, here's the easy solution. But there really isn't an easy solution right now. But what we can do is try to make better, more responsible choices every day in reducing our single-use plastics and making sure that we're reusing products as much as we can, discarding less waste. Less waste in our landfills means less microplastics and plastics in our rivers and oceans. It's a pretty simple calculation. So that's something that you can do today that can help but then also supporting initiatives, fundraising, politics that promote organizations like the Ocean Cleanup and the work that they're doing. Because even though, like we say, it's just kind of like chipping away at an iceberg, at least they're actually doing that. Because if we don't have groups like that, then those forecasts of tripling our plastic and tripling the problem will occur <laughs> unless we mitigate that. And it's groups like that that may just help at least stem that flow and maybe one day optimistically help reduce and reverse the problem that plastics are causing on today's civilization. 
Okay, that's it for today's episode. Now, next week, I want you to all set your calendars. Tune in for this one because we've got a big podcast coming up for you that you really won't want to miss. Now, if you remember in July in Riviera Beach in Florida, there was a shark fishing tournament where they went out and targeted bull sharks, bringing a whole bunch of them back to the dock. And there was death threats and all types of craziness going on. And at the head of this was a guy named Robert Fly Navarro. Now, he was the spokesperson for the tournament and he's an advocate for shark fishing and we've got him on our next podcast. Now, I promise you, this is one that will both surprise you and be really, really interesting. So there's going to be some fireworks. That's absolutely guaranteed. Make sure you tune in for next episode coming up on Monday. Thank you for listening to Shark Week, the podcast. Be sure to rate us five stars and subscribe for more shark fun facts. Until next time, I'm Luke Tipple. I'll chat to you soon.